Episode 5 of the Archive Jazz Podcast. Let's go around and say what's up to the guys here today. We've got Mr. Tom Everett. Greetings. How are you, Tom? Very well, thank you. Nice, nice. And uh, Jeff Lean is with us today as well. What's going on, Jeff? Oh, not much. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Nice, nice, nice. So we've got another action-packed episode for everyone today. Um, we've got another fantastic interview with New York City-based alto saxophonist Patrick Cornelius. Uh Jeff hooked up an interview with that, and we're really stoked with how that came out, eh, Jeff? Yeah, that was a great interview, and it's a really, really great album, so you're going to want to check that one out for sure. Awesome, awesome. And uh, the other half of this episode will be our first discussion of all things live albums. So we've got a, a great list of titles over on archivejazz.com, so head over there and check those out. Um, but before we jump into those, what you guys just heard on the intro was uh, was from Michelle Petrucciani's release, A Night in Karlsruhe. Um, and that release was released recently on SWR Jazz House. And it's got Gary Peacock on bass and Roy Haynes on drums. Quite the lineup, eh, fellas? Uh, yeah, ni- nice little rhythm section. Recorded in July of 1988. Cool. Nice. Um, Michelle Petrucciani is uh, an absolutely unbelievably gifted piano player. Mm-hmm. I first uh, saw him in 1985 when I went to New York. I was working for EMI for the uh, Blue Note reunion concert at Town Hall, and that was and he was playing in Charles Lloyd's band. Wow! And they did two. I think they did two songs. Um, and uh, we later then signed him to Blue Note and made about five or six albums with him. He's French. Um, he has something that was had something that was called glass bone disease. Mm-hmm. Um, he was stunted in growth and uh, could break a finger playing a very loud chord if he wasn't careful. He was also one of the most carefree, wild people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I did some hanging out with him in Los Angeles and in Paris and in New York. I actually attended um, a reception held at the Village Vanguard. I think it was his first marriage. I still have the T-shirt. They actually made T-shirts for attendees. Awesome. <laughs> what did the T-shirt say? Um, I've forgotten her name, but it was Michelle and uh-huh. married Village Vanguard. And I think it lasted about a year. Yeah. Very cool. And um, he was just a brilliant player, and he he suffered incredibly with his broken bar disease and uh, very fragile but very very funny man mm-hmm. and uh, extraordinary piano player really wide breadth of talent and skill at the keyboard and um, great I mean to survive the way he did he had a tremendous sense of humor I mean essentially usually his bass player is 
drummer had to carry them onto stage because it was right. too difficult for him to get on. Mm. Uh, but once he got started, he was just extraordinary. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're, it's a real treat to have you know some music from them to play on, on the podcast, and and I, I know that everyone will enjoy listening to that album, and it's on our list of of releases up there. And I mean, what a what a rhythm section, eh, Jeff? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Roy Haynes, you know, it doesn't get much better, and he's still going, yep. right. going strong. Right. <laughs> I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, he just, uh, I believe he celebrated his 94th birthday, if I'm, if, uh, yeah, something well, like that. Yeah, I think it might even be a little more. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I was in New York City at the IAJE conference before that uh, organization went belly up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember coming home late from the bars and, you know, I was coming back to, uh, you know, whatever, the hotel, the Hilton that was over there on 46th. And... Yeah, it was probably about 4 a.m., and I was approaching the hotel, and out came Roy Haynes with <laughs> kind of a girl on each arm and just laughing and, and nice. calling the cab. And I was like, man, I'm so tired. How's this guy going? Nice. And that's just like, you know, how how he is, I wow. guess. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, he's the man for sure. I mean, who hasn't he played with? And, and Gary Peacock's kind of in the same boat, eh? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's uh it's it's a fantastic release and again we're so so happy to have some music to play for you guys on on, on this episode um so before we jump into the live albums uh let's talk a little bit about the nea jazz masters um we had four uh four people recognized four fantastic musicians um and stanley crouch who's an a critic and a writer and an author um and so congratulations to bob duro as Tom mentioned in an earlier episode, uh, was awarded this recognition posthumously. So, Tom, did you want to say a few words about you know Bob and how he was honored? Well, the- I mean, it's it is just such a shame. It was a great thing to happen. It's a, such a shame he wasn't there to enjoy it mm-hmm. because he's had kind of an up and down career in the jazz world. He's a singer songwriter, one of the men behind uh, uh, a lot of just a lot of lyricists. He, mm-hmm. he was really promoted great songs, um, came out of Arkansas, um, made a record for Bethlehem in mid-50s, and uh, I signed into Blue Note, and uh, we made three albums, one a duet with David Frischberg, one Right on My Way Home, and one entitled The Too Much Coffee Man, based on a comic strip. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a fantastic, upbeat guy, um, uh, loved jazz, had or Miles recorded two of his tunes in the mid '60s, and uh, he sang on the uh, Miles Christmas song "Blue Xmas," hmm. and uh, was a wonderful fellow, um, active until the very end, and a real pleasure and honor to be able to have worked with him. I'm just sorry he wasn't there to receive it. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, kudos to the Na- National Endowment for the Arts for you know recognizing him and. I believe it was his family that attended. Is that is that right, Tom? Uh, his daughter and his his widow. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, um, a couple others that were that were recognized um, was the South African pianist Abdullah Ibrahim, sometimes called the Chopin of Africa, a really beautiful player. Um, and originally recorded or was credited with as the name Dollar Brand. Right, right. So yeah, he's got some really great albums out there. Um, you know, a few that are listed on archivejazz.com. Um, one of Nelson Mandela's personal friends, actually, and, you know, back in the apartheid, it's a really interesting kind of, you know, cultural, you know, 
ecosystem that they had back then, but music was one of the ways that they, you know, kept the underground fight going in a lot of ways. And hmm. Abdullah was, uh, you know, a big part of those. And, and yeah, he makes some fantastic music. And uh, n- another worthy uh, nomination by the National Endowment for the Arts. So, again, kudos to them. And the third uh, was Maria Schneider. And then, as we mentioned before, Stanley Crouch, the author and editor. Um, so yeah, that's uh, it was it was good to see another fantastic ceremony and four more worthy recipients. And thanks to the National Endowment of the Arts for making it happen. Live albums, guys. Where do we even begin? I mean, this might become a two two part discussion here. You know, there's two, there's three just, or four or five part discussion. <laughs> I mean. It's just too much too much to get into. So we've asked the guys here to whittle down their picks for live albums and. Uh, Let's start with you, Jeff. What's one that you want to talk about that, that, that you really enjoy? Well, I mean, there's so many um, really great concerts that have been recorded live like that. Uh, one of my favorite ones is the Colm concert, uh, Keith Jarrett's masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was recorded in 1975, and it's one of those performances that has lots of lore around it and just like a lot of stories and stuff. It's, it's unbelievable um, completely improvised you know, concert and everything right. that could have gone wrong went wrong mm-hmm. um, leading up to the concert. So that's sort of the interesting thing about that whole story. Right. Um, this was, the concert was in Cologne, Germany. Uh, 1,300 people were in attendance. And uh, is that was that at the big symphony hall or, at or something? House. At the opera house. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so it was captured by ECM, thankfully. But, you know, it was one of those this happens you know sometimes you're having really really bad days and everything's going wrong and then the performance goes amazingly well right so with with this you know keith jarrett was having back problems um he was trapped he had to travel like 300 plus miles that day you know on little sleep so he was completely exhausted and then he gets to the venue and they give him uh, a baby grand instead of a real grand piano Mm. And it was out of tune. I, yeah. And it was <laughs> everything you can imagine bad happening with that. And if you know Keith Jarrett and, and some of that, you know, he has perfect pitch. And, you know, you can imagine how upset he was. Mm. So I believe that there were some engineers that worked on it, you know, while before the concert mm-hmm. to try mm-hmm. and get it into, into pitch somehow. And even if you're listening to the recording, the, the tone of the piano, especially in the upper register and that, it's just not not great. Yeah. You know. But the ideas that are flowing out of this guy, you know, yeah, it's just, it's really, really unbelievable. Um, the show actually started at 11.30 p.m. Right. And so if you're already tired and then you're starting your gig at 11.30, that's pretty rough. Um, the first movement is the one that, that really always moved me. And, you know, this is one of those albums, you know, in college we used to, you know, it's just funny, just a bunch of dudes sitting around listening to solo piano, but that's what we did. And... You know, it's just from the first notes. I can only compare it to the opening of Love Supreme, where mm-hmm. it's just this sort of like, I don't know, just some sort of truth came out of it. Right. And, you know, hey, it's hard to talk about music sometimes to put it into words what you're yeah. feeling, you know? Absolutely. Um, but there was, it was like almost a stream of consciousness. It was meditative, the whole thing. And what I really, really loved about this recording in general is, is sort of the silence. And you can feel the heaviness of the room almost. Mm-hmm. And... There's a few spots in there um, where he, I don't know, just the space between his two ideas. Uh, 
you can it's almost like you can hear him thinking about it and and yeah. plotting his next move yeah and you know and there's a spot where he starts tapping his foot on the stage and it's picked up by the microphone and it's just tap mm-hmm. tap tap and he's just going along and then he takes the tap away almost like it was part of the piece and it's just this pure silence and then this pianissimo just like da 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 kind of thing and it's just like whoa it's unreal <laughs> that's the part that used to just blow my mind but yeah what anyway. and what is it about live recordings that can just kind of capture that stream of consciousness like you said what is it about you know what makes a great live recording i think it's something like you said the story the yeah. circumstances and then that's all just you know on the outside and then you actually listen to the album and like yeah. you said, it's mind-blowing. Well, I mean, jazz is such a reflective thing of the audience that is, that's there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to get a good jazz recording if you're out, your audience isn't into it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, when you have a genius like Jarrett just creating stuff out of the air, and you've got an audience in Europe that's probably going to be more quiet than they are here. Right. Um, it's, it's just kind of a chemistry and feeding off each other. Or the sense sometimes when you're at one, a concert, where you get the feeling that this is going to be one of those nights. It doesn't yeah. happen very often. But there are times when you're hearing, seeing, seeing and hearing somebody perform and you think, if they do this every night, that's amazing. But tonight seems like it's better than ever. Yeah, yeah just that sort of energy in the room. And, you know, it's live, so it's one take. I think it's it's jazz's natural habitat. Right. <laughs> you know? and yeah. If you, if you hit it right and, you know, some beautiful things can happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an absolute classic. I mean, yeah. it's right up there with, you know, for me at least with the top of all time so and i think it is still the you know the highest selling solo piano album it's like four million copies and sold on this thing there you go and it's amazing it was a, and it was a rough night yeah it's, <laughs> it didn't matter exactly yep. yeah well it just gives you an idea of the genius of the guy making it yeah there you go and you've got two of us two in your top five so i do yeah there you go yeah. there you go similar reasons right right so Tom, let's go to you next. What's one? What's another one that you'd like to discuss? I went uh, kind of old school on these because there are some fundamentally great live records from the fifties and sixties. And uh, Bill Evans live at the Vanguard with Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion um, in nineteen sixty one is kind of one of the quintessential live jazz trio records that kind of made everybody's. Evans was better known as a sideman back then. And uh, just to hear that trio, especially Scott LaFaro, who died in a car accident a few days after the gig, um, there's just a magic and there's a suspense, suspense mm-hmm. and tension and swing um, that really, really came together. And you get realize these guys probably did this every night, but they were caught particularly in a, a really extraordinary evening in 1961. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and what is it about the Village Vanguard? I mean, the list of live recordings... At that well, venue. for one thing, the Village Vanguard is built in an extraordinary, it wasn't designed by, it. I mean, it's an old basement, but the way where the piano sits and the way the music comes off the back of this corner where where um, the bandstand is, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's, a, it's not a giant room, um, but there's no bad seat in the house. Uh, there's some better sight lines than others, but the sound is fantastic. And some of those things are just ineffable. You can't quite wasn't designed by a scientist that way it's just that whoever built that building um knew what they were doing yeah and also you've got to realize that i mean i've got on my list bill evans trio john coltrane miles davis i knew rudy van gelder the engineer for him to take his recording he's he talked to me about it uh, the the trouble that it caused to carry his re- 
big recording rig mm-hmm. down the stairs and set it up in the Vanguard. It was a, it was not easy to do, right. and um, he would go down and set it up. And he was an incredibly meticulous person. I mean, he started out recording in his parents' living room, some of the greatest jazz recordings of all time, which mm-hmm. we discussed. Mm-hmm. But uh, then he had his studio built, essentially designed by people that design aircraft hangers and acousticians. Um, for him to take his equipment and then set up in the Vanguard was very difficult for him. Sure. He finally got it down, but I mean, it's, it, he, he lost control of the environment. So you've got right. to control crowd noise, you've got to get a good balance. And, and you've got to have the right room, too. You've got to have the right room. And the Vanguard, the way it's built, with the back, you walk down the stairs, off to the right is the bar, then the little tables, and then in the far left corner is the Vanguard, or is the j- stage, excuse me. Right. And it just projects beautifully in that room. Yeah, absolutely. And another great, you know, a, another recording with a great atmosphere, like like you said, a great crowd, and you know, you want it, you want to know that the crowd's there, but you know, it's uh, you want to feel the excitement of exactly. it, and also the fact that it was Scott LaFaro's last performance before his accident. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, there's there's kind of two albums I chose that sort of fit together in the same sort of theme: um, Diana Krall's Live in Paris, of course, and then Keith Jarrett's Still Alive. Um, and both of them kind of accomplish the same thing for me, uh, where they're taking standards, um, very standard material. And it's fun to hear people are just like, you know, complete monsters play something that you would hear like at a jam session or something, you right. know? Right. So on this Diana Crawl recording, I used to watch this all the time. So there's a DVD component to this whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it has Jeff Hamilton, John Clayton on bass, Anthony Wilson on guitar, and of course Diana Crawl on piano and vocals. And she's playing things like, you know, All or Nothing at All, Cry Me a River, I've Got You Under My Skin, covers of Joni Mitchell, A Case of You. Um, and it's just beautiful performing. Everybody was just like, you know, just what, again, it's one of those nights where all the pieces just kind of came together and everybody must have had a good meal and felt good. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So um, that was recorded in, in Paris uh, right. in 2001. Uh, and it won the won the Grammy for best jazz vocal album in 2003. Absolutely, so it was uh, released a little bit later there. But um, you know, it's just a beautiful album. Uh, and then the other one, the Keith Jarrett. Uh, this is with Jerry, uh, sorry, with Gary Peacock on bass and uh, Jack DeJohnette. And it was really my intro into Jack DeJohnette. Uh, even though you know I heard some of the other stuff, you know, with Miles and whatever, it was uh, just sort of a, a beautiful you know performance with him and playing things that are unexpected in, in the whole thing it's again super standards right you know my funny valentine autumn leaves billy billy's bounce and just the way they're they're molding those and thinking about you know different ways to approach it and i think it would hit me at a time when i was playing and, and i was tired of everything i was i was playing and getting sick of you know making the same choices all the time and these guys just knocked it out of the park like there's a lot of different ways you can do this yeah so DJ, it, that's jack's pianist too yeah, yeah, so he's, he's fantastic. Double pianist. threat, yeah, yeah, and he plays drums that way. He's it's very compositional and and thinks about. Um, you can hear, you can almost hear some of the chord changes and in, in some the way he approaches his toms and, and and things like that. There's absolutely a lot, of, a lot of amazing things he does. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, you know, that you say, you know, like you said, there's a lot of different ways to to play something, and with a like you said, a high level of of musicianship that's present. There, it's not going to be like what anyone else would do, you know. It's going to be completely yeah. unique. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I saw Elvin uh, in Boston once, and you know they had played this super heavy set of just like just monster tunes, and then they did like a, in a cinnamon mood. 
something like that. And it just blew my mind. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's nice to pare it down, and get back to to some of that stuff. But Absolutely, beautiful melodies. Yeah, for sure. And and one other thing that really struck me about Live in Paris was just the stunning quality of the recording. I oh, mean, yeah. with with Jeff Hamilton's drums, it's you know you hear every stroke of the brush, you hear every cymbal, yeah, and it's and it's just a fantastic recording. It's kind of a it's an interesting contrast between the old school, like you know, uh, Bill Evans live at the at the Vanguard that right. kind of recording technique, and now we've got all this modern digital, yeah. you know, all of that. So I'm and that's evidence on that album. It's it's stunning quality. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And the audience was way way deep in it and that mm-hmm. makes it all better I and mean, it really does lift the bandstand when the audience actually cares <laughs> yeah absolutely so. you want to talk about the miles davis you got that cd there in your hand well there's two things here there's the classic john coltrane at the vanguard with elvin mccoy recorded in 1961 which is uh one of the landmark live records of all time i mean, i think most people you probably remember where you were when you heard that the first time mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just like a band taking off um I mean, it was before, you know, I wasn't, I was a kid then, very small kid. Um, but when you finally, uh, when you get into Coltrane and then you finally put that on and you feel what those people felt and heard that night, it's, um, it's nearly, nearly religious sometimes when it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, and also I just happened to have this brand new release on, it's part of the Miles Davis bootleg series on Sony. And, um, it's the final tour that Miles Davis did with John Coltrane, or John Coltrane did with Miles Davis's group. And um, it's uh, Wynn Kelly, Paul Chambers, and Jimmy Cobb, 1960 in March. And uh, it's astonishing because Coltrane had moved into the modal world from there. Mm-hmm. And when I put this disc on, I thought, there's Miles and his group, and then Coltrane comes on and just goes totally off <laughs> off the chords into the modes right and then comes back and it's like somebody changed the color of the light of the room a thunderbolt hit you <laughs> and then it settled down again and we went back to miles's group which is playing <laughs> playing really really well that's awesome but it's the first feelings and uh i get the physically listen to coltrane moving away from the traditional jazz harmonies into more modes and really extending chords out which he did on his own records, but to hear it in the concept of the Miles Davis quintet, when it, when it's, you can almost feel Miles going, "What the heck are you doing?" <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then it goes back to Miles with his muted trumpet, and then it's to Coltrane who takes it, you know, to Mars for a while and then comes back. <laughs> it's really an astonishing document. Yeah, and that that was a really cool, really cool release, and and yeah, the really cool series um, that they they've done. There was couple of them I think yeah Sony's done a great job with the the Miles catalog and the way they've staged it and marketed it Absolutely. yeah the photos in that are amazing too there's mm-hmm. that one with Coltrane and that the backdrop is that the huge audience and it's just that's a amazing stuff yeah yeah and so that's uh yeah that's another box set that's available at, at archivejazz.com is it two CDs or <clears throat> four CDs Tom it's two it's four four yeah awesome awesome it's a lot of music for more miles quickly, mm-hmm. uh, another what I'm what I want to do is have an all Miles Davis live discussion, yeah. Um, because there's so many Miles Davis live recordings all the way through, all the way to when he goes to Japan and makes Agarta, which uh-huh. frightened me when I heard that in college. That, it, <laughs> it's like you have to go check the doors to make sure that uh, everything's safe. There you go. Um, there's just a whole legacy of Miles Davis live recordings, and one of the my favorites is at the Blackhawk, 
Um, yeah, absolutely. In San Francisco with Wynn Kelly, Paul Chambers, Hank Mobley. And um, that was the group between, you know, it was before he got into uh, Coltrane. And um, it's just another one of those Miles Exploratory records where he gets a group together and everybody's at the top of their game and mm-hmm. making some of the best recordings they ever did. Yeah, is, is that a smaller venue, the Black Hawk there? Uh, yeah, that was not a big room. I don't mm-hmm. think so. I mean, the right. photos you see at the Black Hawk, right. it's quintessential kind of early 50s jazz club. And you wonder what it was like for these. I mean, not that j- clubs are much better now, but yeah. back then, some of them were really dicey and oh, yeah. really tough. And even photos of the original Birdland looks kind of small. Uh-huh. And uh, I think the Black Hawk might have been something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the Birdland. Um, there's another title on our list, Art Blakey, Live at the Birdland, Volume 1. This is, you know, and Tom's talking about that sort of transition moving from, you know, where Coltrane's moving into more of the modal movement and his stuff. This, for me, this album, and I'm a, I'm a Jazz Messengers freak, you know, uh, this was really them becoming the messengers as far as I'm concerned. Is this, the, of, is this the one with Clifford Brown? In the yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lou Donaldson? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they're kind of moving out of bop into hard bop. And, you know, the elements of hard bop, you're getting gospel and blues and these other elements. It's very uh, kind of aggressive and, and dug deep, you know. <laughs> anyway, so this mm-hmm. album, uh, it was 1954, and this was uh, two years before Clifford Brown died in the car accident. Um, and he was, what was he, 24, 25 mm. when he did. So yeah. it's kind of a, you know, legendary for that, too. I mean, he's just flying high on this thing. And I'm always amazed, you know, when I think about, guys like him that accomplished that much by that time in their life. I mean, I, I wish wish we could have gotten more. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. This was, so this was Rudy Van Gelder, you know, engineered this thing, and uh, Alfred Lyon produced it. Uh, and this was the first time I ever heard Pee Wee Marquette say anything. Yeah, <laughs> Just, I know. And he, so he was, Pee Wee was like a, a guy outside the club, you know, uh, and a host of the evenings. Kind of like an MC kind yeah, of Yeah, he was like the MC. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, talk about atmosphere on a recording. I mean, just that introduction from him puts you right there in the club, you know? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I, I talked to my uh, my drum teacher from college who was Blakey's road manager, um, a guy named John Ramsey, wonderful drummer, and and uh, was deep in there. Anyway, he, you know, I shared with a clip with him the other day um, of Pee Wee Marquette. He was on Letterman. Yep. And he gets on there and, and you know, whatever and does his thing and he actually sings a song and it's just it's just very like old school kind of vaudevillian and right it just had a lot a lot of interesting things about it. anyway i said it to john and he said he said something funny about what, how, what Blake, blakey used to call him but i can't say it ha- half of something yeah. half, <laughs> half of something we can't talk about yeah, even true. though we're not quite on the air <laughs> right 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 anyway, but it was it was really funny uh but the album is you know masterful yeah. uh yeah and you know with with the messengers everybody in the band was allowed to write and you know, and, and bring it in. Blakey would just say, you know, bring in your tunes and we'll turn it into Messenger's tunes. Right, And so right. it was, just, you know, Horace Silver wrote a couple compositions on this. And, you know, it's just and it's just we, And we touched beautiful. on this a little bit in the last episode, but the mentorship that, that he provided. And, and who what were the what were the musicians on that on that recording? I mean, was there any young guys on there that he well, was Clifford, kind of... Yeah, were, I mean, yeah, Clifford Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Lou Donaldson, Horace Silver, and Curly Russell was playing Yeah, bass. mentorship is a big word. I don't think it was used right. in the 50s. Right. Yeah. They didn't look at Art Blakey as a mentor. At the recent IAJ, or, uh, uh, Jazz Educators Convention uh, in New York, 
one of the greatest afternoons I've spent in a long time was about 30 people sitting on stage, and each one of them had played in Blakey's band right. at one time or another. And the stories started flowing. And um, <laughs> there was a lot of things that people were laughing about, and then a couple of references that a few of the players kind of made a reference to, and all the band members got it. Right. But they sure. didn't just quite say everything out yeah. loud. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure but not. they all had stories about Blakey and how he kept the band together, and how sometimes the money happened, and he just it just didn't get to the people to play. <laughs> and and uh, I was lucky enough to see Blakey a few times, but the first time I was in college, and um, I went to school in the Twin Cities, and Northwest Airlines, that was their center, and they had a lot of flights to Japan. Ah. So occasionally we would get somebody, in this case it was the Blakey band, that went to Japan to do gigs. Yeah. And then on their way back to New York, they had to stop in Minneapolis, so they get booked for two nights. Mm-hmm. And was um, it like the D- Dakota or where it was? Uh, no, no, no. It was the Longhorn before it was the oh. Rock and Roll Club. Oh, okay. And I saw Bill Evans there and Sonny Rollins and a bunch of other people. But uh, the band was David Schnitter on alto, Eddie Henderson on trumpet, uh, Blakey on drums, Walter Davis Jr. on piano. Yeah, I love Walter Davis. And... Um, Cameron Brown on bass hmm. and uh, places like half full for the second set and really? they just played and played but it was I mean it was just truly a perfect you know a slice of history watching these guys play and just watching Blakey play and yell at the guys in a good way trying right. to keep them moving and and <laughs> saying an occasional obscene thing to them to get them burst out a little more sure. and uh, it then I saw him a few other times later when um Terrence was in the band, and uh, um, I mean, he was a band leader till the end. But there were also, you know, times when the money didn't quite make it all the way to the players. So right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. tough to keep a band together like that and to book it. But yeah, uh, he was legendary, one of the greatest. Yeah, yeah. And, and launched a lot of careers, a lot of careers. I mean, Lee Morgan is another one that comes to mind for me. I mean, yep, one of the tons of them. Wayne yeah, Scho- yeah, Scho- yeah. Scho- all kinds of people. Like right. Blakey, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, another fantastic recording. You know, a night at Birdland. That's the volume one that we've got featured on at at our list at archivejazz.com. So I think that just about uh, does it for this episode as far as the live albums discussion. I think I think we might have to open this can of worms up again. Gladly. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. Um, and so now let's let's transition to our interview with Patrick Cornelius. Uh, Jeff set this one up. So Jeff, did you want to kind of say a few words? You know, I, I talked some about my background with Patrick. I knew him at Interlochen in Berkeley. Uh, he's an amazing alto saxophonist, composer, highly underrated as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But everybody, musicians, you know, jazz musicians know right who he is. He's a, he's just a great, a uh, really great player. And he has a new album that came out. This should be fun. One of many albums he's put out, and this is on Positone. And uh, so we get to dig into that, talk some about uh, his concepts for writing and and just, uh, you know, his background, the players he chose, and how it all worked out. Based in New York City? Is that yeah, right? New York City. Without further ado, let's cut to our interview with Patrick Cornelius. I am pleased and honored to welcome our latest guest to the Archive Jazz podcast, the great saxophonist Patrick Cornelius. A little over 20 years ago, I heard an absolutely shredding alto saxophonist in the woods of Interlock in Michigan. That was my first introduction into Patrick. If you don't know Patrick, he is an alto saxophonist, uh, composer, educator, originally from the beautiful city of San Antonio, Texas. Eventually made his way uh, to Berkeley, Manhattan School of Music, and later Juilliard, so quite the stacked deck of 
jazz education. He has released several highly acclaimed recordings and received three consecutive ASCAP Young Composer Awards. He's also been named a rising star in Downbeat uh, Reader's Polls consistently for several years. Uh, he has a, a very prolific start, uh, to say the least, uh, to what I know is going to continue to be an amazing career. Today we are celebrating his newest release out on Friday on the Positone record label. Uh, the name of the album, This Should Be Fun, is an impressive journey into the mind of this great saxophone and composer. Uh, so welcome to the show, Patrick. We're very happy to have you. Thanks. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. So just kind of want to go through this album. Can you walk us through it? I think this is your eighth recording. Is that correct? Right. Um, well, technically six as a leader, but eighth overall if you count uh, projects that I co-led. Oh, that's right. That's right. The title is the first thing that kind of pops out to me. I'm curious about where you came up with that and what your, your mindset was. Well, uh, when you say this should be fun, uh, it can have a few different meanings depending on where you put the stress of the sentence. Mm -hmm. um, you can say this should be fun, right? And, uh, <laughs> yep. and, and I mean it in that sense um, because, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of music that I hear, original music that I hear in New York City by, by very talented band leaders and uh, composers and players um, that I enjoy, it's, you know, it's all very purposeful and very serious and um, very, um, I guess, conceptual and, you know, uh, music that I really admire and enjoy. But at some level, I, you know, I think that uh, I, I, I think I miss hearing a little bit of the fun and playful element of the music that I used to hear more when I first moved to town around 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and the other meaning is, and, and, and I totally include myself in, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in this group of individuals, but yeah. I'm kind of remembering like, wow, it, the reason why I wanted to play music was because it was fun. So, you know, this yeah. should be fun. Let's make it fun. Yeah. Um, and then the other meaning is, of course, if you put the stress on this, it's like this should be fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in other words, when speaking of the tune, uh, the title tune specifically, I thought it would be, which is, you know, kind of a blues with a second line feel. Um, I specifically wanted us to really have fun with that tune and, you know, not take yeah. ourselves so seriously. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, and I think that, I don't know, so many people that are kind of in our age group now and have, have take, gone so like extreme academic and, you know, it can get pretty, pretty deep with all that stuff and you do forget, you know, you know, why, why we're really doing this. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, it resonated in, in that way to me and it, made sense to me when I when I saw that but I wanted to confirm that that's what that meant <laughs> so right well I mean I spent a lot of I spent a good amount of time you know hanging uh, around New York hearing I, I spent a lot of time checking out of the musicians going to shows like at Smalls or Smoke or the Standard or the Gallery or whatever mm -hmm. and um, I, you know I notice um, going to hear live bands you know it's, it's a fun experience and the audience including me reacts um, most strongly to times when it's really clear that the cats on the bandstand are really having a good time and enjoying each other and uh, are really in the moment. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of, I mean, everything, in my opinion, as far as art's concerned, should have a balance to it, whether it's balance between one piece to the next or balance within a piece itself. And it's mm -hmm. perfectly great to have um, music that's about serious things. And I think we should. And the music needs to address um, things, especially, uh, uh, you know, in our society. And, yeah. you know, and I do have, um, there is a piece on the album that's a lot more serious. Um, but it should be counterbalanced, I think, as far as 
you know, when I'm talking about what I like, uh, with, mm-hmm. with, you know, the full range of human emotions. So fun serious versus serious, sad versus joyful, you know, we need to make room for all of it in our music. Absolutely. And, you know, and the album really does speak to that because it has this balance to it. Um, yeah, there's just so many great tracks on this and we'll get into that here in a minute. Um, but I do want to talk about the band that you assembled for this. These are some some guys you've worked with before, and you you all sound very comfortable together. So can you uh, just kind of talk about who you put on this session? So if you're familiar with uh, Positone Records, um, it's a very it, the the um, their organization has a real really strong uh, family vibe and family value to it. Hmm. Um, they consider their uh, their label and the roster of artists who have participated in their recordings to be part of the family. And it's really important to them that um, everybody, you know, feel a sense of community in the label. And I really, I really appreciate that. I really buy into it. So when I approached Mark uh, Free about wanting to do an, another record with them, this is actually the second album I've done with them. The first mm-hmm. one was uh, I released, I think, in 2012, uh, which is quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I said, well, Mark, you know, you know, throw out some names. Let me know. You know who I've worked with. I know who you've worked with. Let's talk with each other to see who would be uh, the best fit for this project. And, um, you know, Mark Ferber uh, was the first name that we agreed on, uh, the drummer, Mark Ferber. He was actually one of the very first musicians that I met when I first moved to New York City. And he played on my very first gig in New York back in 2001. At wow. a place that no longer exists called Cave Haas. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was a really fun gig. I was thinking back to that gig the other day because I just played with Mark a few days ago again. And I think uh, the pianist was a guy named Asen Doikin. And um, the bass player was Michael Blanco, who, who uh, lived with Mark at the time. And now he plays a lot on Broadway. And uh, Avishai Cohen was playing trumpet because wow. he was a friend of mine from, from back in the Berkeley days. And uh, I was just remembering, man, <laughs> that place no longer exists a lot with a whole bunch of other places <laughs> that, yeah. you know, you know, in New York, uh, you know, it seems like every, every day or every year, at least we hear about a great venue closing, which is really sad and another topic. But yeah, uh, but yeah, but Mark was an easy decision. And um, and also John Screet on piano. Uh, he did an album with Positone many years ago uh, called Consequences. Uh, which featured kind of an all-star cast, including Matt Brewer and Taishan Sori and Ambrose Ekmusuri. Mm-hmm. And um, I had worked with him with a band that I used to co-lead uh, called the Transatlantic Collective, which is a, was a European-based band. John is originally from Doncaster, UK, and uh, he did this really super long, like, 40-day tour with us. Um, and yeah. uh, it was just so much fun. I hadn't worked with him in years, but I knew that he, you know, he was in the Positone family. So we, we decided on him and he did a great job. Oh my and gosh. then Mark actually, yeah. Mark actually suggested Ben Allison on bass. Uh, I hadn't worked with him before, but uh, of course his reputation preceded him. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Of course I'd love to work with him. <laughs> and we got together and made a record. Yeah. Unbelievable. And you have a trombonist on this as well, don't you? Yeah. I can't forget my good buddy, Nick Vianos. He um, actually is on, of all the records that I've done, we, we, we'll, we'll say eight, he plays on six of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. He's like, my, uh, he's like my partner in crime here. And then yeah. I, I, played, I played on a bunch of his. And, you know, we just work really well together in the front line. And he's one of my good buddies. And I really enjoy playing with him. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, and uh, I was I listened to this recording many, many times uh, yesterday and, and before this also. And I got to say that first track, uh, Big Pictures, when John comes in on, on piano on his solo, that solo is, I mean, that thing should win awards. <laughs> that thing is <laughs> unbelievable yeah. solo. I mean, I kept going back well, to that thing. I'm like, gosh, man. Yeah, he's really like ripping right out the gate. You know, it's yeah. a funny thing. Um, you know, people people have asked me like, uh, how, you know, my music is not is you know relatively straight ahead. I guess it's mm-hmm. it's not straight ahead in the sense that we're playing standards in right. a in a, an authentic bebop style, but you know, straight ahead in that you know it swings and it's got a groove and it's not you know avant garde or anything. Right. But you know, <laughs> on my albums, I've had you know musicians like John and uh, and Jeff Ballard and Frank Kimbrough and Miles Okazaki. You know, uh-huh. these are musicians who are considered a lot more progressive than necessarily my music dictates but right. you know i want them to do their thing and i was like well john Street is on my album yeah. so i want him to <laughs> yeah, i want him free. to express himself <laughs> within yeah, the context man. of my tune yeah and he and did, he, did. <laughs> he sure did man yeah yeah and it's i mean everybody sounds so good you know being a drummer mark you know obviously did so many things that just blew my mind it's just you know it's a wonderful recording i did want to ask you about just the composing of it. It seems like with a lot of your albums, you have sort of a theme and you're, you're writing towards the album. Is that how you, you approach it? Or is it like you're collecting tunes that you think would fit together in an album? Well, each project has been different. I think uh, my album, Maybe Steps, which was released on Positone in 2012, had kind of an organizing theme about it in that I was trying to be more expressive um, as opposed to, you know, impressive, which in the past I've written music um, based on external stimuli, like things that I've seen that I've liked, that have inspired me or heard, mm-hmm. you know, it could be classical music, it could be painting, it could be poetry. Um, yeah. But uh, in, in that case, and I think in this, the case of this album, this should be fun. It's the same thing. You know, I, I wanted to express something uh, in my life. For example, this recording in particular i think um you know I, when i decided it, I, my last my last album was uh, a concept album it was written for octet and everything was very specific mm-hmm. and uh, there was a there were a few years between recording that one and this one because i just didn't feel like i was ready to move on to something else right and then i finally decided well i need to document something and what better thing to document than like my state of mind and what's yeah. going on in my life right now yeah. So, you know, Big Pictures is, of course, um, relate, relates to my need to let go of the minutiae of everyday life and not focus on small things that might, uh, little things that might irritate you, like someone parking in front of your driveway or, you know, right. or leaving trash in front of your building or, or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, bumping into you on the subway, just, you know, let, yeah. letting that stuff go and focusing on, you know, the various big pictures of your life. Yeah, uh, because you know life is too short to <laughs> to focus on minutia. Yeah, and then there's yeah. another, you know, and then there's a tune on there. The two ballads on there are very specific. Um, you know, "Precious Souls" uh, is I wrote when I was feeling very despondent about what I was reading in the news um, last yeah. summer. And that was a and uh, then, uh, that was a bass. That was a duo with the with bass, just you and Ben, right? Yeah, I just it needed to be very simple and very raw and very um, uh, uh, vulnerable. Uh-huh. Um, I, I just didn't want anything 
to do anything with it other than just make the statement. Yeah. And then the other ballad, For Morgan, was is actually a tribute. Um, also, uh, about a week before the recording session, um, my very first saxophone teacher and uh, one of my early mentors, and, and also uh, one of my one of my best friends over the years, a saxophonist in San Antonio named Morgan King, passed away very suddenly and very tragically. Mm. And uh, you know, I wrote that song the day after I found out, um, and just kind of expressing how I was feeling at his passing. Yeah. So you know, the songs all have some kind of relevance to my my daily life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's the concept. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear hear about your your instructor there and all that. That's that's very sad. You know, you you are also an educator yourself, uh, mm-hmm. and you know you've obviously had you know went through all the different you know the different places, Berkeley and Manhattan and whatnot. Is there anything? Um, and we're kind of step. I know we're stepping away from the album here, but I'm just curious. Is there anything that you wish you had learned that you now pass on to your students? Um, you know, through through your education, through your professional experience, that uh, that you feel would be valuable for them. Well, something that I wish I had learned, or something that I did learn. Well, something you wish you had learned. Okay. Well, um, I think I wish, uh, maybe not so much in academia, but you know, when I was beginning my career, I wish I had focused on people more and less on music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. In other words, I, I mean, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours practicing, which you need to. Like the first right. years after I moved to New York City, it was I was practicing around eight to ten hours a day. Yeah. But, you know, oh, I wasn't like you know I wasn't on the scene as much, and I wasn't meeting as many people, and I wasn't participating in the fellowship of the jazz community here as much in those days. I think I was just kind of I just buckled into into my craft and. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I did that, and, and I needed to do that, and young musicians need to do that. You also have to be, you know, you also have to learn, meet other musicians and learn from them and, and be part of, like, the bubbling cauldron of creativity. Yeah. Um, that is what makes this city, and, and you know, and other cities uh, around the world that have vibrant jazz communities. Um, yeah. I, I wish I had not waited so long before I felt confident enough to, <laughs> to step into the music scene here. I um, see. But... Yeah. I think that's the advice that I would give young people. My college students that I teach, I, I tell them more than anything, you know, the most important, you know, just as important as practicing is um, is getting out there and playing music and, and being in, in, and meeting people and just, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's one thing I tell my children. Yeah. One thing I tell my children overall is that, you know, the most important thing in life is the people in it, you know, not mm-hmm. what you do, not the stuff. And, and I think I wish I had realized that a little bit earlier on. I just really want to thank you very much for, you know, influencing my career. And, um, and I, it's just a wonderful thing that I get to talk to you all these years later. And we're still, we're still yammering on about music and having fun <laughs> and, and talking about this. This album is, is incredible. I really encourage everyone to go out and, and get a copy of it. It's going to be released on Friday. Um, so best mm-hmm. of luck on your release there, Patrick, and, and uh, honored to have you. And I, I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being a guest on your show. And I look forward to talking to you more about a variety of things. Absolutely. (laughs) We got a lot to catch up. All right, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Patrick, for for, uh, taking the time to speak to us. Really, really fun. Uh, Everyone needs to go check him out, patrickcornelius.com. So, guys, another fantastic episode. Um, Fun. 
yeah thank you yeah i think i think we might have to come back to the live albums i, I think our there fans if we're just scratching yeah. the surface there's a lot more to talk about and a lot of different directions to go to absolutely we didn't yeah. even get into cecil taylor live oh yeah absolutely <laughs> seriously so yeah as always um go check out our last episode we had a couple of fantastic artists on the show and kendrick scott and keanu lionel and check out their their latest releases um follow us on facebook instagram and twitter um, we've got some really cool things coming up in social media, so uh, keep an eye out for those. We're going to be looking to do some more interactive things with our listeners on, on social media, so uh, make sure you're following Archive Jazz on there. And finally, follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you do, you'll get updates when we do a new episode. Um, we might have some bonus content coming for you guys here shortly, so keep an eye out for it. And uh, Let's end with some more music from Michelle Petrucciani Trio with Roy Haynes on drums and Gary Peacock. My name is Christopher Peck. I'm Jeff Lee. I'm Tom Everett. Until next time. Mm-hmm.